Amen. Let's get our Bibles out open to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 should be around the middle of your Bible. You can grab that hardback Bible in front of you, turn to page 1068 if you don't have one. That way you can read along with us. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. If you get to Micah, you went too far. Jonah chapter 3. So today in our sixth sermon in Jonah, we will spend some time talking about grace multiplied. Jonah's taught us a lot. If you are not familiar with Jonah, maybe if you're just joining us, uh, Jonah is much more than a story about a big fish. Jonah is a story about a prophet, uh, a man that knew God and had been used by God, but had grown complacent in his Christianity. He was spiritually sleepwalking. And he, because God had done good things in his life and used him to proclaim good messages, that he sort of lulled himself into the belief that that's how God always works. And that God, he had certain expectations that God would just leave him uh, in this wonderful place that he was doing the things that he enjoyed to do. But God had bigger things for Jonah. And it's a great indicator of how God seeks to work in my life and your life. That he's not content with us to be sitting still. And so in chapter 1, verse 1, when the Word of God comes into Jonah's life, it is literally like a nuclear bomb. And it comes in and God says, Arise and go to Nineveh, the most vile, wicked city on earth. The enemies of God's people. People who would not just conquer the nations around them, but were so brutal and so bloodthirsty. And they would conquer neighboring cities and line the exterior of the walls around the city with the pelts or the skins of the people whom they conquered. They were very, very brutal people. And when God says, Arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah says, forget it. And he runs. Just like you run, just like I run. There's not a person in this room that hasn't run from God. If you haven't run from God, you don't know God. And that's just the truth. Because when you know God, you realize He is different than we think He is. That he, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And he's amazing and wonderful and gracious and long-suffering, but he's not safe. He's not safe. And he has big, big thoughts and hopes for every one of his sons and daughters. You know, the thing about God that we talk about a lot around here. I wonder sometimes if you're maybe in a spiritual conversation with some family members, maybe you're talking on the phone or they're in to visit, they live somewhere else, and so you're in a spiritual conversation with them or you're having a spiritual conversation uh, at the office or with your friends and you, you say something about... Uh, God being a, a God of clean your room theology. And they think, what in the world are you talking about? But the Bible teaches us this principle about God. And when God tells us to clean our room and we don't clean our room, He's not going to tell us anything else until our room is clean. And here's how Jonah teaches us that. Look, look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to them the message that I tell you. 
Sounds a lot like chapter 1, verse 1, doesn't it? You see, God doesn't modify His requirements to accommodate our reluctance. Guess what God does to Jonah? He calls him again because he's a God of second chances. Amen? He calls him again, but what does he call him to do? What he originally called him to do. And that's the principle that we have to see. I mean, he's a God of second chances. And he's going to take us in that second chance right back to the place where we said no. He's going to take us right back to clean our room. See, what happens in our life is God will tell us something we don't necessarily want to hear. And so what we want to do is ignore it. We want to, we want to sort of believe that we can have a, a places in our relationship with God where there's irreconcilable differences that just exist. You know, like, well, we're just going to agree to disagree. Well, that doesn't work with God. He doesn't believe in irreconcilable differences with his children. No, whenever there's a disagreement between you and God, be very, very clear you are wrong and God is not. So here's another way to put it. You can get your listening guide out. I just continually come up with new and creative ways to say the exact same thing. It's the same thing. God's not going to take you anywhere until you go back to the place where you said no to Him and say yes. And you could just ride out to the side, clean your room, exclamation point. Now here's what I want us to see. Jonah didn't deserve a second chance. God was under no obligation to give him a second chance. In fact, Jonah didn't even want a second chance. That's, the, that's what blows my mind. I've been so waiting I love the book of Jonah. I've loved every week we've been in Jonah, but I've been waiting for chapter 3. Man, I love chapter 3. You see, it shows us the mercy of God to those who fail and who run. It's so different than the way we respond to people who disappoint us or let us down. It's astonishing. Have you ever felt Have you ever felt God doing this in your life? Sort of pushing into this area of your life where you have sin or, or places where you struggle. And it seems so unnatural, so strange because we tend to, to develop this ideology about God in our minds that we, we serve a God that's going to lead us to safety. And He does. The problem is whose definition of safety are we using? See? And so what we, we, we think that he's going to lead us away from temptation and danger. But what he really does is he pushes us right back to it to address it, to deal with it. Remember when we were in the, uh, the uh, Gospel of John and we got to that place in John chapter 21 where Jesus restores Peter. And I showed you how Jesus takes Peter to the place of his pain and then restores him it's the same thing here why does God do that with us I mean have you ever thought about this why does he send us back to the place of our failure why does he bring us and expose us back get that wound 
back open so it can be addressed. Think about it. The Lord is so capable of just transforming us instantaneously. He doesn't have to do it this way. He could just snap his finger and make us into what he wants us to be. It'd be so much easier for him, and my goodness, it'd be easier for us. But God delights in working in his people. Why? Why? Well, think about who his people are that he delights in working in, first of all. Think about how the Scripture will show us That God works in weak people, broken people, deformed people, jacked up people. God doesn't work in good people. You know why? Because there aren't any good people. And if you think you're good then God won't work in you. But, but why is it this way? I, I want you to see this before we get into this text deeply. I want you to see what's happening. When God works in broken, jacked up people, what does it do? It becomes evident that the work that's been accomplished could only have been done by Him. See? It brings glory to Him. It removes the, the opportunity, at least the rational opportunity. We, we still sometimes struggle with this, but it removes the, the rational opportunity for us to take credit for what's been done. But if we were good and we became better, well, then we could do that ourselves. But if we were dead and became alive, something supernatural must have happened. See, when God uses us in spite of our terrible attitudes and our selfishness, when God uses us in spite of our Jonah-ness, what can we say except that while we serve a, an awesome God. So what we see here is God's faithful pursuit of Jonah's unfaithful heart. It's God's faithful pursuit of Jonah's unfaithful heart. Isn't that sort of the motto of us as his people? I mean, wow. See, this time, after all that Jonah's been through, and it's a lot, we'll get to it in a minute, but this time is different. Look down at your Bible. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This is a completely different response than we had two chapters ago. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. This was an enormous city. A three-day journey. An extent. And Jonah began to enter the city. And on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we, we've been through an awful lot with Jonah to get to this point. And now Jonah responds and does what God calls him to do, and it seems a little bit anticlimactic, doesn't it? After all of this, we finally get to the moment that everything's going to take place, and he says eight words. Eight words. Yet forty days, and none of us shall be overthrown. He didn't mention the Lord. He says nothing about the possibility of repentance or grace. You know, there's a lot of people 
who profess to be really wise, who accuse Jonah here of preaching the worst message in the history of messages, who they say this is the lamest gospel presentation in all of history. In fact, I thought about naming today's sermon How to Fail Preaching Class. Because if you pulled this in seminary, you get an F. But look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God. What? They proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And then the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. I want to point a few things out to you here. The king of Nineveh responds to the message, but here's the thing. He's not even aware of Jonah's visit. Until after Jonah apparently is gone, the word that Jonah spoke makes its way to the king through the common people. So this little eight-word gospel presentation has enormous ramifications. Now, there's a whole lot we could say about this. We'll talk a lot about it next week. But it, what does it teach us about how much of people's response to the gospel and the Spirit of God has to do with us? Has to do with how crafty our delivery is and how smooth we are and, and, and do we know everything and have we... All of the things that predominantly cause most of us to keep our mouths shut and not share the gospel are meaningless. Amen. Because that's the worst gospel presentation I ever heard. And the city starts repenting. So who is the catalyst for transformation? Who is the cause? Who gives ears to hear? It's not us. It's not you and it's not me. God has prepared the hearts of people to hear. He just needs willing people to speak, even if we're bumbling idiots and only got eight words. And then you're going to start the message out with judgment? That's your message? I want you to realize that without the declaration of the awful and awesome reality of the judgment of God, the story of the grace and mercy of God is going to fall on deaf ears. Because mercy and grace have no value apart from judgment and wrath. Why? Well, you don't need mercy and grace if there's no judgment. What's the pattern we see in Scripture? John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 3. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not hey, guess what? Grace is now available to you. No, it's his first message is repent. And what did people do? They responded by repenting and getting baptized. Jesus comes on the scene, Mark chapter 1. And what does he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul's gospel presentation in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
See, the way Jonah began, began his message is, 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 is in good company, isn't it? Yeah. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, now, what is Jonah saying? He's saying, hey, folks, whatever you're doing right now, you need to realize that you're soon going to face judgment. He's declaring the urgency of the moment. But is this all that Jonah said? I mean, you wouldn't believe the crazy things I hear people say about this section of Jonah. I mean, do we believe that all Jonah said with these eight words and these eight words alone and that was the end of it? Well, let's read on and see what the text reveals to us. Look at verse 7. So uh, the king, continuing about the king, verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Hmm. There's your answer right there. How did the king know to respond that way? If Jonah only said those eight words, that would not be what, what, what the king responded with, would it? No, it wouldn't be. If the only thing they knew was in 40 days, Nineveh would be destroyed, then why would the king have any reason to point out his own and his people's evil, violence, and why would he have any reason to hope in the mercy and compassion of God? You see, the gods that Nineveh served that were gods of only judgment and wrath. They were gods that you either pleased or you paid. That's the only way that worked. See, if the king knew these things about God, it seems obvious to me the king knew Jonah's story. You see, first of all, the people in Nineveh, they knew Jonah was a prophet. They, they knew that about Jonah. And so when Jonah said that, that they'd be destroyed or overthrown, they knew that he wasn't talking about some marauders coming in from outside. They knew that he was a spiritual man giving a spiritual message. They knew that. But more than that, what the king is saying is, if, if God can save Jonah, we have a chance. That's what he's saying. See, I think what happened was I think that Jonah told his story. I think that Jonah told him about how God had sent him to Nineveh and he didn't go and he tried to run from God and God wouldn't have it. I mean, he probably had to give some explanation for the paleness of his skin and the whiteness of his hair. Well, you see... I tried to drown, but I spent three days languishing in not only the smell of old sushi, but the gastric juices of a giant fish that bleached out all the pigment from my skin and my hair, which is why I look like a freaked out wild version of Albert Einstein. But God saved me. 
You see, the king understood that God was a God of salvation and a God of that mercy was possible, that compassion was available. It wasn't guaranteed, but it's available. So he declares a fast. Man and beast, everyone, don't feed your pets, don't feed your kids, nobody. Everybody's going to fast and pray for the mercy of God. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we know from the rest of the book of Jonah that Jonah didn't respond to God's call perfectly. We know that. But clearly Jonah shared more than those eight words. And clearly, God had prepared the hearts of the people of Nineveh to receive the message that Jonah shared. See, see, I think that Jonah's testimony would be, you know, after, after this experience in the belly of the fish, don't you think that the praise in Jonah's heart would be saying, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. You never stop working. That's what Jonah would be singing. Because he experienced that. He, he, he had no idea what God was doing, but he was busy. He was working. And Jonah now realizes that. So we see another principle here that God uses flawed messengers who have experienced His grace. You see, because there's two components that are necessary for me and you to be useful in the kingdom of God. Number one, we got to be flawed, which, check, we got that covered. All of us. No, I mean like you too. All of us. See, some of you look to the side. What's, what's that about? I'm talking about you. You got to be flawed and, and you must have experienced God's grace because you can't you can't share something you've never experienced. You can't give something you've never received. And so now Jonah is still far from perfect. Well, amen. But usable. Usable. And so he uses Jonah. Just like he uses us. He'll use what, what he's been doing in our life. As a means of reaching others. You ever notice that? I'm always pointing out to you how God is always using what I'm going to be preaching to you in my own life. Prior to me sharing with you. And God's doing the same in your life as you're hearing and as you're receiving. And so the things that are going on in your life are going to be the platform that God most often is going to use... To give you opportunity to share with the people that God places around you. So Jonah didn't go into Nineveh, I don't believe, with a bunch of theological information. Jonah went into Nineveh with a message from God and the story of how that God had worked in his life and how he had experienced it. And you know what? He, he didn't have to, he didn't have to, to understand how God was going to use it. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to necessarily feel a great love in his heart towards the people of Nineveh. All of that hadn't been resolved in him yet, but, but he knew what God had done in his life. Just like you know what God's done in your life. You know. But there's another reason why I believe that Jonah told the Ninevites his story. 
You know, Jesus mentions Jonah. Jonah comes up twice in the New Testament. And Jesus said that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. But what kind of sign was Jonah to the Ninevites? Was he simply a sign of preaching, a sign of a message? Was it just a sign of in 40 days you're going to be destroyed? Well, look at Matthew chapter 12. It'll come up on the screen, verse 39. So Jesus answers the Pharisees, and he says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They're saying, Jesus, why don't you show us a sign? Why don't you validate your, all of your claims? As if Jesus hasn't already exhausted. By this point, by Matthew chapter 12, they've already seen a thousand times all they ever would need to see to know that he's the Messiah. And he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what is that sign? He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Come to church tonight, and you'll understand that statement, okay? See how good God is? That's your text for tonight. So if you're going, what does that mean? We'll come to church tonight. Verse 41. Then the men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So you know what that tells me? It's crystal clear. Jesus not only validates the story, the testimony of Jonah, but he also validates the revival of Nineveh. So whenever you hear people say, That the repentance of the Ninevites was only in, in word. They didn't mean it. It wasn't really a revival. Tell them to take that up with Jesus. So, how do we process this information? Well, I mean... To me, it's, it's like a, a megaphone declaring how God uses our failures and our traumas and our shame. The horror of our past mistakes, how God uses all of those things. And in the most desperate moments of our lives... He uses it all to advance the gospel. That's what he's doing. He's right before, he's using Jonah to illustrate how he works all things together for good in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what he's showing us right there. You see, I want you to understand God never wastes a thing in the lives of his children. Never. Not one thing. Whatever happens in the life of his sons and daughters, God's not wasting that. Now, it may be, a, it may be painful, and it may be all our fault, and we may hold all of the you know, guilt and responsibility, and all of those things may be true, but God's not wasting see, God's mercy endures because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, His mercy, the mercy of God extends to all people. It extends to everyone. It's, it's God using broken Jonah and all of his brokenness to, to reach, to be the vessel by which God's going to reach people who are... They make Jonah look like a saint. 
Don't you see this? He's pointing out the brokenness in his prophet to lead him to what he perceives to be the greatest brokenness on earth. But God loves him. God loves Jonah and God loves the Ninevites. You see, it's this realization, it's this aha moment of his mercy is powerful enough to save anyone. It's, it's deep enough to reach anywhere. I mean, consider the city of Nineveh. Consider. As I thought about Nineveh, I thought, well, what was the, what was the number one thing Nineveh was known for? Because they have a long, the Assyrians have a long history in the Old Testament of being mortal enemies of the Israelites. And so if you start reading through the Old Testament and all the encounters that Israel has with the Assyrians, what, what is the one thing that keeps jumping out at you? That what, is the, what, is the, what are they most known for in their wickedness and their violence beheading God's people. Are there any people on the earth today known for beheading Christians? I wonder if we took a little poll today. If I asked you on the way in this morning... Hey, who do you think the most wicked people on earth are today? Would there have been any competition? I don't think so. Newsflash. God loves the Taliban. He loves ISIS. Did you hear what I just said? He doesn't care how you feel about him, Jonah. He loves them. You understand that? He loves them. They're made in his image. He created them. He wants to save them. And guess what? I told you a few weeks ago when we were in Acts. He's saving them at a faster rate than any other people on earth. And there's less Christians going to proclaim the truth to them than any other group on earth. You know what I think is going to happen? I think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to realize that we lived in a nation of Jonah's. You don't think God's powerful enough to save anyone? Consider the person you're listening to right now. You think people who worship Allah and chop the heads off of Christians are worse than lost Tony? Well, they're not. And it only proves that you didn't know lost, Tony. See, I stand before you this morning as proof that God's rich in mercy. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. I stand before you as living proof that God desires that all men should be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4. I stand before you this morning as... Living proof that God's not wishing that any man should perish, but that all should come to faith in Him through repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. That's what the Bible says. All, even the people you hate, even the people you can't stand, even the people you think are so repulsive. The Bible says God desires that no man perish. 
We're not God. So if we won't share the gospel with people that live across the street or work in the office with us or that we stand in line at the store with, or I mean, think about how crazy this is. There's some of you in the room, you haven't led anybody to Christ in your life. You don't remember the last time you shared the gospel with somebody. That is insane. It's insane. And yet you in your heart hate anybody? Maybe the message we need to hear is judgment is coming. Maybe that's what we need to hear. I guarantee you one thing. I'm proof of the mercy of God. And you know what? So are you. So we ought to live like it. We ought to act like it. It ought to be evident. The story of Jonah, so many people... They, all they see is reluctance. And it is a story of reluctance, but they see the wrong reluctance. So let's get it straight, okay? The great reluctance in the book of Jonah is not Jonah's reluctance to obey the word of God. It's God's reluctance to leave his servant in a place of uselessness. That's the great reluctance. The mind-boggling thread that weaves the story of Jonah together, it's not a story about a man who's reluctant to obey God. It's a story about a God who is reluctant to let his man languish in uselessness. I want you to think about when Jonah gets spit up on dry land. Just want you to just think about that moment. Jonah's in the belly of the whale. Jonah repents and prays to God. The fish spits him up onto dry land. Now, he doesn't know what's coming next. Chapter 3, verse 1 hasn't happened yet. See, first he's spit up onto dry land. Then chapter 3 comes. So what is he thinking in that moment when he's spit up onto dry land? Come on. What are you thinking if you're him? The same thing I'm thinking. Man. Am I glad to be alive? But what's the next thought that enters his mind? I'm alive, but I've blown it now. I'm never going to be used by God. It's over. I'm alive, but that's it. There he is, spewed up onto the beach. Now, who's around? Did, was, he, was, he, was he barfed up onto the beach in a group of people? It's just him, all nasty and smelly. and He's looking around, realizing he's alive, but he's alone. And he's like, well, I'm alive, but that's all I got. I'm restored to safety, but I've squandered my usefulness. I'll never be a prophet again. God's never going to give me a message again. He's not going to use me anymore. It's over. It's the same words that you hear and I hear in my head in moments like this. The enemy loves to come along and say, you're finished. You're done. You've blown it. There's no recovery. I mean, you did it this time. Yours is a destiny of regret. All you got is breath in your lungs. That's all you got. You'll never make a difference. So there he is, sitting on the beach. I'm glad to be alive. But I don't have hope in anything more than that. 
He's in the same place the prodigal son found himself in, isn't he? See, that, that's the story of the prodigal son sitting in the pigsty. There he is sitting in the pigsty, starving. Realizing how, what a disaster his life is. And so what does he do? The Bible says he comes to himself and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home to my father. And so what does he say? He says, I'm going to tell my father that I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And I am not worthy to be called a son. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what he said? I'm not worthy to be called a son. All I can hope for is to live. If I can just be in your house and be a servant in your house and have food to eat, my greatest hope is just to live. And so he gets up to go home just to live, and what happens? The father sees him coming, runs to him, hugs his neck, and kisses him. He doesn't get a butt whipping. He gets a banquet. Because God's a God of second chances. See, you might be here this morning. You feel like you just got spit up on the beach. You don't need anybody to tell you how wrong you've been. You don't need anybody to point out all the mistakes you made. You're fully aware of all of those. Everything is a disaster. And the voice in your head is just pounding you over and over and over about how useless you are and how all these things that you've done have, have left everything in disarray and it can never be repaired and those, those opportunities will never come again. And all of that's true, humanly speaking. But when the God of second chances gets in the equation, everything changes. See, he's the one that's able to restore even that which the locusts have eaten away. He's the one that's able to rebuild the unrebuildable. He's the one who can take utter destruction and make it into something beautiful. And this is what he does. He doesn't just make it into anything beautiful. He goes back to where you said no. And in grace and mercy, lets you say yes. He gives you another chance to clean your room. He's a good father. You see, you might be sitting here this morning and the best you could hope for was just to be safe. You're just glad you're safe. You're just glad that all the things you did or what you're involved in hadn't killed you. But in that, there's this understanding in your mind that you're never going to be greatly used by God. Because of what you've done in the past prevents God doing something great in your life. How insane is that? Well, how could we be so deceived? In God's economy, if we are safe, He will never stop working to make us useful. So you see, by safe, I mean saved. You can't be satisfied with safe. And here's why. Because if you're saved, God won't let you. He will not let you. He is relentless. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He didn't have to restore Jonah. He chose to. Just like he restored me. Just like he restores you. And when he restores Jonah, he restores him to a place of usefulness in his kingdom. 
See, Jonah was on autopilot. Before the word came to him the first time. And Jonah thought that God was okay with good enough. Jonah bought the cultural lie that if I'm not doing anything super bad, then everything's going to be okay. I know that's in this room. And so do you. In your heart, you know God saved you for more. You know He he saved you to serve Him. How are you serving Him? He saved you to use you. How is He using you? Right now, I want you to think in your mind. I want you to answer this question. I am useful in the kingdom of God. How? How? Do you think he wants us to remember him around his table this morning? Is the point of remembering to remember just some event that happened 2,000 years ago? Or is the point of remembering because what happened 2,000 years ago has implications in this very moment right now? How? Listen. May the Spirit of God clear from your mind the lies that you've believed. About all the things you've done or the mess you've made. Or all the lies about the God that you've made him out to be. Let's make this morning the word of the Lord has come to you a second time. You come up here to the altar and kneel down. And go back to where you said no. And say yes. Yes.